Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Falling Asleep in Church. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 20, verses 7 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. a memory that goes all the way back to my early days as a pastor. And I remember a man who used to sit front and center where everyone could see him, but he was a narcoleptic. You know, without going into any of the details of that condition, let me say that people with narcolepsy fall asleep without warning. You know, on one occasion, I actually watched this man fall asleep while he was talking to someone. So if you fall asleep while you're doing the talking, well, you can be assured that you're also going to fall asleep when someone else is doing the talking. And so it was that this dear brother decided he would always sit front and center where everyone could see him and that he'd always fall asleep during my sermons. It really didn't matter if I was interesting or boring. He just slept while I preached. And of course, for everyone who seeks to preach well and grab people's attention and get them to talk about what you've said after you're done, and with this picture of someone always sleeping in the front of the church, that was a little hard on my ego. Sometimes I felt that God put that man there to keep me humble, and it worked. I was humbled every Sunday. I preached, he slept. Oh, well now, we've come to Acts 20, verse 7 and following, and we encounter the most famous example of someone sleeping while Paul preaches. You know, his name is Eutychus. Every preacher knows about him, and every preacher fears that they will, at some time in their ministry, encounter someone just like him. But before we get there, let's read our account. It's found in Acts 25 to 12. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Well, I don't know if others were falling asleep as well, but, but when that thump happened as Eutychus hit the floor, I have no doubt everyone woke up. But outside of this being a miracle story, and that this is also a bit of a humorous story among preachers, and perhaps also among many churchgoers, is there a spiritual lesson in all of this? Is this about, you know, anything more than don't fall asleep in church? And if you do, you know, make sure you're not sitting on the edge of the balcony. And if you are sitting on the edge of the balcony, would you make sure that you're listening to a guy who has the authority to raise the dead? (laughs) Well, I do think that there is more to learn from this account than have the decency to stay awake during a sermon. So let's begin. As Luke tells the story, Paul and his team have completed what must have been an incredible assignment. You know, having received word of the desperate condition among the Christians in Jerusalem, you know, the Jewish Christians, Paul has sought to raise funds to help from Gentile Christians in Greece. The act would produce two important results. First, it would bring the Jewish Christians the relief they so desperately needed. But second, it would express solidarity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. People would say, see how they love each other. 
They would say the barriers of separation between Jew and Gentile have been broken down in Christ. And so Paul has completed the task, the money's at hand. Now the only thing left is to deliver the money. And given there were bandits and travel wasn't always safe, that was an incredible undertaking. So while writing to the Corinthians, Paul does say he is at times in danger from bandits. But he sets sail from Philippi. He arrives on the coast of the port city of Troas, which, as I've often said, is in modern-day Turkey. And it's here in Troas that Paul decides to stay for seven days to be with the church. And then we come to verse 7. We find Paul preaching. I think that's important for a number of reasons. Initially, Paul had spent no time there. The Lord had given him a vision while in Troas of a man from Macedonia begging him to go to Greece. And so he simply passed through Troas. But in time, a church had begun there, and Paul now wants to spend some time with them, encouraging them, teaching them before he resumes on his journey. And he's there seven days, and then he comes to the first day of the week. You know, there's some question as to which day that actually was. You know, because the events described in this passage happen after sunset, I mean, some have tried to make the case that it must have been on Saturday night. You know, Jews think that a new day begins at dusk, but Gentiles think that it happens at dawn. And so I think here there's, there's very little doubt this meeting happened on a Sunday evening. And I make mention of that simply to help us understand that all the evidence indicates that Sunday and not Saturday very quickly had become the Christian day of worship. It's possible that some Christians also observed the Sabbath, but eventually Sunday, the first day of the week, was their day of worship. And that explains why in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, as Paul's giving the Corinthian church instructions as to you know, how to handle giving, listen to what he says. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So the first day of the week became the day of Christian worship. And so as Paul's in Troas and Sunday rolls around, it's a day of Christian worship. And we notice that the church is meeting in the evening. And that would be because Sunday wasn't a day off in the Roman world. Almost everyone would have been working in that day. When the day is done, they had time for worship. Our text also tells us that the church gathered together to break bread. And that means they shared communion, which is, of course, the Lord's Supper. The early church, so it would seem, had a practice of sharing the Lord's table every Sunday, although we know from the teaching of Jesus, the church is free to determine her own schedule as to how often the Lord's table is celebrated. Nonetheless, the service would have lasted a long time. There would have been singing and prayers would have been offered and scripture would have been read and the Lord's table would have had a central place. And then after all of that, remember, it's also after a full day of work, people are on the job, Paul would have gotten up to share a message. And because we know that Paul had wanted to be in Jerusalem by the Passover, and because he was in a hurry to get there, we got to assume that it's now spring. The days are getting warmer. Maybe the room is warm. You know, the room where they're meeting is also filled with torches and would have been in a room like that where the oxygen supply is being used up by the lamps. And Paul, since he knows that he's going to leave the next day, and because he does want to share some important truths of Scripture, thinking this was his only opportunity to be there, he decides he's not going to hurry through his material. He's going to take his time. This is very important. Luke simply says he prolonged his speech. He lengthened it. See, I don't know how long Paul would customarily preach. We know that while Paul was in Ephesus, 
You know, in order to raise up Christian leaders, Paul would lecture every day in the hall of Tyrannus, and that would go on from late in the morning until well in the afternoon. But I judge what's happening there, that those were lectures and not preaching. And furthermore, I assume there was probably time for discussion in Tyrannus. Well, a sermon is different, and you know that. A sermon is ordained by God, for as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.21, he'd say, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's true that preaching is a kind of folly. It appears that way. In one way, communication. In our world where it's common to denigrate preaching, and we hear people say, I mean, the last thing I need is another sermon. They mean, you know, a one-way diatribe. They mean no opportunity to respond. But Jesus, he was a preacher. The apostles, they were all preachers. And the 2,000-year history of the church, of the Christian movement, from one perspective, and David Larson says this well in his book, The Company of the Preachers, he says the 2,000-year history of the church is a history of preachers and of sermons that have shaped the life of the church. How many of us came to Christ? after we heard a, you know, a spirit-filled biblical sermon based on a Bible text, having the glory of Jesus at the center, along with the saving news of the gospel. And perhaps when Paul preached that night, he thought it important to work out of some of the very important implications of the gospel. It was so important for these hearers to know it and be deeply rooted in this. And he had only this one opportunity, so he had to make a decision. And he decided to extend what he had to say. He was going to go on for some time. (laughs) I know, I know. I can almost hear all of you rolling your eyes right now. I mean, doesn't every preacher think that? I'm going to extend my sermon. It's so necessary. But is it necessary to make sermons last that long? Doesn't Paul understand it's been a long day? Room's warm. We've all worked all day. And we're going to work again tomorrow. Our bodies can only take so much. And as to Eutychus, The fight to stay awake, that was lost a long time ago. He's sitting up in the balcony and he's already fast asleep. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Among many, Paul has a reputation of being a bad public speaker, a very poor preacher. And that reputation is bolstered by this very incident here. He had to raise a dear young man from the dead because he wouldn't stop speaking. He went on and on. He didn't notice that some had fallen asleep until, you know, that poor lad fell down from the third floor and killed himself. That is, some might, you know, take the moral of this story to be that if you can't raise the dead, keep your sermons to a proper length. 
Now, of course, that's not why Luke is telling us this story. He tells it because of the miraculous power that God had given his apostles. We know that Jesus on three occasions had raised people from the dead. There was the widow's son in Nain, that's recorded in Luke 7. Then in Luke 8, we have the account of the raising of the daughter of Jairus. And then finally, there's the story of the raising of Lazarus, that's in John chapter 11. In that final case, the point is clear. Jesus raises the dead, even though in time he knows they're going to die again because they're still in this sin-cursed body. But in the case of Lazarus, Jesus declares that he's the resurrection and the life. That is, these resurrections are a foreshadowing of the final resurrection from the dead, which Jesus will bestow on all who become his disciples. Peter, as you might remember, Acts chapter 9, raised a woman named Dorcas. Such was the authority that was given in Jesus' name. And it needs to be added here, however, that there are two First Testament accounts of raising of the dead, one by Elijah and the other by Elisha. I mean, these accounts do anticipate the coming victory of the Messiah. Well, nonetheless, this account here in relation to Eutychus does demonstrate that Paul also takes his place in the company of those who have been called as apostles of Jesus to proclaim that there is a resurrection to come. Revelation 20, verse 6 reminds us, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And I need to add these events, these foretelling resurrections are abilities that are given to a very few people. I find it sometimes disconcerting when I hear of individuals who attempt this matter today does tend to make us look rather foolish, and in many cases, it causes great damage to those who are grieving. You know, this false hope that some have, that they can raise the dead today, and then, after they've failed, and then after they've been humiliated, well, it undermines the confidence that we need to have in the resurrection to come at the end of the age. You know, in the minds of many, if the people proclaiming that they can raise the dead can't do it, What confidence should we have that there'll be a general resurrection in the end of the age? So let me clarify this matter. I'm not a cessationist. I believe that the gifts of healing of tongues are also available to the church today. But it's also quite clear from the Bible that the apostles, the apostles were given a superabundance of gifts that is not repeated today. And all that is to say to today's Christians, when someone dies, don't attempt to raise them from the dead. Call people together who will comfort and proclaim that the first resurrection awaits anyone who puts their hope in Christ. Do that. Now, having said that, the critic of Paul's preaching might say, well, none of this would have even been necessary had Paul been a better preacher and had Paul not gone on and on, which, you know, many of us know is that failing practice of bad preachers. Preachers should all learn that the first lesson when preaching a boring sermon is that when you dig a hole, rule number one, stop digging mercifully. End your sermon early. Was Paul a bad preacher? Well, some say yes, and they do so by pointing to Paul's own words on the matter. 2 Corinthians 10.10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Well, Paul admits that's what his critics have been saying. And given what he had written in his letters, they expected more of him, but alas, it was not to come. He, He was, they said, unimpressive in the pulpit. There's also Paul's own admission that's found in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6. There he says, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. 
So how are we to understand Paul's words when he says he's unskilled in speaking? I think this way. A great many Bible teachers take it to mean that Paul had never received formal training in rhetoric. That is, in Paul's day, training in rhetoric, oratory, ability to speak and to hold large audience, was not only highly valued, but it also required the best teachers in the world. Indeed, professors in rhetoric were known by the quality of the students they produced. And Paul had never been under any of such teachers. In the case of the very famous Christian preacher, John Chrysostom, 5th century, his teacher of rhetoric was the very famous Libanius. He was a famous pagan teacher. He was well-known throughout the world. His star student, student that would cement Libanius's name forever, was John of Damascus, who later be called Chrysostom, the golden mouth. When John converted to Christ, he was called Chrysostom. And Libanius was bitter until the end of his life, and he blamed the Christians for it. He complained that they had robbed him of his star pupil. I say all that only to say that Paul wasn't in that category. In Corinth of Paul's day, when famous orators would come to town and they'd fill whole stadiums and they could at one moment have people roaring with uncontrollable laughter, and at the very next moment, they'd have them weeping in grief. And such was the power of their craft. And people came in droves to hear people like that. And Paul admitted he was not one of those. And that's why when he writes the Corinthians, he gives those famous words in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said that he was convinced that there was a danger in lofty oratory ability. And the great danger was that the power of persuasive speech would become a substitute for the power of the persuasive cross. And if you think about that, That's what sometimes happens in the church around the world today. And look, I'm not arguing against great preachers who can hold a large crowd. God bless them. May God use them for his glory. I mean, such a man was Apollos, a man trained in rhetoric, who used his training for the glory of God. But there's always a danger in this. People come to hear the man speak, and if the speaker is not sufficiently entertaining, the crowds just wander away. Same is true for the music that we bring today. What's lacking is the hunger to worship God, not the hunger to worship music. I mean, strip away everything, I say. The great preacher and the great rocking bands, but do not strip away the cross. But I fear that in today's Christian world, there are those who would gladly strip away the power of the cross, and then, you know, if the worship band is hot and the preacher tells stories that, you know, cause you to laugh at one moment and cry at the next, that many are content and they know nothing of Christ. Look, I'm not arguing that Paul didn't go on for too long. I'm actually not arguing that he did either. Paul wasn't perfect. He, He was a sinner. Only Jesus was perfect. But I'll say this in Paul's defense. The reason he took the extra time is that he knew this was his only chance to make sure the Christians in Troas understood the message of the cross and were firmly grounded in it. He didn't go on and on because he saw that they were eating out of his hand and he knew could hold them. If only that kid Eutychus hadn't you know, fallen asleep and fallen out of the window. Rather, Paul went on for a long time, for this was his only chance for these believers to be grounded in the fullness of the gospel. And for that reason, he took the chance and took the extra time. And if that's correct, then it tells believers what we are to look for today when we listen to preaching. Seek Christ. 
Seek to know the gospel. Seek the cross. Grow deeply in good biblical theology with the glory of God at the center. And if it's entertaining, that's fine. But if not, it's fine as well. You've got to know what's important. And having said that, let's very quickly go to the next section, which is Acts 20, 13 to 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for as he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the next day we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I hope you noticed here that Luke in Acts, again, you know, uses the word we and us. He's signaling to us that he's again joined Paul's team. And the journey would continue. With the adventure in Troas behind them, it's now time to go on to Jerusalem. And that's how it was with Paul. He was quickly off to the next adventure. Yeah, he had preached until they slept in Troas, but then again, he had preached until he had explained the great doctrines of God. And God had also done a great miracle that night. And such it was, the weakness of man and the power of God. That's what Paul saw. And that's the glory of the church. We are people of foibles, but we have a God of might and of glory. Let's never forget where the power comes from. Let's never forget what the message actually is. It's the message of the cross, of forgiveness, and of reconciliation with God. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, when it comes to preaching or teaching, we recognize there are many different styles driven by personalities, which I think is fine, but what should we be looking for in respect to substance? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, let's just agree that, um, you know, every preacher should come to this conclusion. I have nothing meaningful to say. The Scripture has everything in the world to say, and I will train myself to repeat back the thoughts and intent of Scripture and make its application plain so that people can know what God is saying to them. Be expositional teachers of the Word and do so as well as the giftedness that God has given you. Uh, I think that's what we ought to say. Uh, Style is wonderful, uh, but content is what it's all about. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth in Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy 
Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.